Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome. Um, it's fantastic to have an audience this size, um, and all the more so because you are here at one of those special moments in the life of any opera company, which is a new opera. There is something quite different, I think, about a new work in performance. First, there was Winston Graham, and then, of course, there was Alfred Hitchcock. Um, Winston Graham published his psychological thriller Marnie in 1961, and there is a connection between Graham and English National Opera. When he was writing one of the celebrated Poldark novels, he decided he wanted to take his hero to the opera. But in fact, he had never been to the opera, so he wrote to the then managing director of English National Opera and asked if he could come, and he came to a performance of The Barber of Seville, and we have the letter in the archives in which he says, thank you very much indeed for allowing me to come. So there's a kind of interesting little hidden tradition there too. The novel, in fact, is based on three stories that Graham had read in newspapers, uh, which see he then weaves into a narrative about a young woman, Marnie, who makes a living by embezzling from her employers, moving on each time and changing her identity. Of course, she's finally caught in the act by one of her employers, a young widower named Mark Rutland, who blackmails her brutally into marriage. Three years after the novel was published, Hitchcock moved the story to America when he directed his movie version of Marnie with Tippi Hedren and Sean Connery. And just for the record, Connery himself turned Marnie into a stage play in which he appeared in 2001. In Nicomulli's opera Marnie, the story comes home. He and his librettist, the playwright Nicholas Wright, have brought the story back to Britain and the corseted 1950s. The perfect location, you may feel, for a novel about unspoken uh, uh, sexual anxiety and indeed deviant moralities. Well, we have a trio of enormously distinguished guests tonight to explore Nico Mooley's new opera, Marnie. Martin Brabins, English National Opera's music director, conducts tonight's performance, and the mezzo-soprano Katie Coventry, who covers the role of Marnie in this production and, as you will hear, plays one of Marnie's doubling shadows in the production, will be talking about preparing herself for the work. But our first guest, of course, is Nico Mooley, the composer of Marnie. Will you please welcome Nico Mooley? <laughs> Hello. Nico, how did Marnie begin? What was the start of the story for you? So, um, we were in, uh, I was in New York and we were about to um, premiere Two Boys, which had its world premiere here, and then it was sort of three days before the American premiere. And the director, Michael Mayer, with whom I'd worked on a, a few smaller plays before, um, called me up, and I was running errands and being nervous. And he said, You know what would be a fabulous opera is Marnie. And I thought, you're completely correct. Um, and strangely, I had been reading the Poldark um, novels, and so we thought, you know, some, something's in the air. And then the Met sort of agreed that this, that this would indeed be a, a great opera. We called um, Nick Wright, who himself had just read the novel as well. So it felt like it was just meant to be. Did you know Nick before? No, I didn't. I, I know, I'd known his work, mm -hmm. um, sort of with Jonathan Dove and with, with um, uh, Rachel Portman, mm -hmm. but we'd never, we'd never met. But it was one of these things where sort of serendipitously I was in London yeah. and we, uh, I was staying in a house eight seconds walk from his dwelling. So. <laughs> <laughs> Surely lesser mortals would have been deeply intimidated by the fact that Hitchcock had produced his film from it. I mean, were you in any sense a little anxious about the sheer power and the reputation of that film? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, sorry, uh, in, in, in a sense, I mean, 
Marnie is not one of the best-known Hitchcock movies, I shouldn't think. Um, and it's a very problematic film um, for a variety of reasons, the sort of sexual violence, <coughs> not, not the least of it. Um, it's, you know, I don't think it's one of his most kind of ravishing um, films, just in terms of cinematography. And um, because the book is so different, or I should, I should say the film is so different than the book, um, it felt like a much easier um, thing than adapting, you know, The Birds or something, which of course would be impossible for other reasons. And so for me, I, I think what, what I did was, um, oh, and I, I should also say the score to Marnie was, was the beginning of the divorce between um, Herman and, and Hitchcock. So I, the minute I knew that I was going to write this, I went home and I invited a friend over, I put the movie on, I watched it, and that was the last time I watched it in 2014. Um, so for me, it was a, for me, it was an easy divorce. How, how much did you watch it, how much did you listen to Herman's score? Well, again, I mean, not, once I knew that I was doing this, mm. zero, basically. Right. Because the thing, the thing with Herman is he's the best at that thing, mm. so there's really nothing you can do that would even approach the, the, the sort of taught... Um, way that that music mm. works, and of course the, the, how much mm. of it there is. Mm. Mm. There's a wonderful quote about Herman, which is that through the music of Bernard Herman for Alfred Hitchcock, North London bears the shock of the second Viennese school. There you go, exactly. Which, which <laughs> um, so you decided you're going to work with Nicholas Wright. Um, did you give him a kind of brief about what you wanted the libretto to do? Well, interestingly, we, we were all sort of in it together. So it's me and Michael Mayer, the director, um, Nick Wright and the designers, Julian Crouch and Mark Grimmer, um, from the very, very beginning, in the, in the initial conversations. And what, there were a few conceits that sort of Nick and I came up with, which was that we, would, we definitely wanted moments where she is, we're literally inside her head, right? It has, the, the, the narrative stops and it's just this sort of psychological information and we call these things links. So there are ways in, be, in between scenes when she has these kind of fierce arias. That was something that we decided right away. Mm -hmm. And that those would be slightly more lyrical mm -hmm. um, and less prose. And the other thing that we thought about was having, and you'll see when, when Katie comes, was having these shadow Marnies who represent her darker instincts but also their own kind of menace um, and a source of comfort. And so there's four of them. And I knew from the beginning that I wanted them to sing in a sort of early music mm. style, so that without vibrato and with their, their kind of own stylized relationship to text. Mm. Um, so sometimes they just make sort of vowel sounds and other times they repeat text that we've heard. Mm. So those were the things that we started with, just no, those were the, those were the givens. Um, I also knew that I, I basically didn't want any sopranos in it. <laughs> so it's a mezzo and a baritone and then we took it from there. And, and you know, Nick's, Nick's first draft was so great. And it's one of those things where, you know, you, you get the email and you think, oh, I'm scared to open it. Yeah. You need to sort of have a glass of wine and think, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll open it later. And I opened it, it was so settleable. I was so happy. Right. And did you have to make some changes as you were working on, 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 on from Oh, yeah. Record? I mean, you, we made changes like <laughs> last week. Right, right. <laughs> but I think you know, I, I've always found with, with libretti or with any text, really, that if you sort of hold it at an arm's length, you can see if it's going to be settable or not. You can see the length of the lines. You can see the feet. You can see kind of what's, what's happening. So if we made changes, they were, they were either totally tiny, so it was just one, one word, or you know, we'd cut a whole scene. <laughs> and, and, and were you working, you know, across the divide of the Atlantic or were you working um, around a table together? So I'm here basically half the year and I have right. been four years. Um, right. And so we, we did most of our work in the same, in the same room.
I've often wondered if you're working with an existing text and a libretto as a composer, if there's a moment with it when suddenly, as you're beginning to think about the score, whether you suddenly see what the shape and pattern of the drama is. Was this true? I mean, do you suddenly see this piece in a Hi, different Katie. way? Hi, <laughs> Katie. Um, so, interesting question. So, so it, it's whether suddenly, as you're working on the piece, there's a kind of moment of extraordinary alignment. You suddenly see something that you haven't quite fully grasped before, which is what it's really all about. Um, that's a very good question. I think that, I think for me, there were two moments like that, which was um, when I sort of, I sort of unlocked how the chorus functions, mm. which is that they are hyper-realistic, they're just people kind of at a cocktail party, and then they turn on her. And that mm. made me aware of the power of guilt as this sort of internal and external thing, right? Where it's other people seeing you, it's other people knowing something that, only, that you think that only you know. Um, so once I figured out how to do that harmonically, and it's kind of nerdy, but it was, it's just these set, sets of chords that represent kind of how much pressure she's under, that unlocked everything else. Um, and then the other moment for me, and I think this is, this is not gonna give anything away, but the very first day that we that we knew that we were writing this piece, we said we have to figure out what we're going to do with this fox hunt. How are we going to do this? And it's I mean, and we we figured it out. I think two days before we opened. Um, it's an incredible design challenge, an incredible uh, dramatic challenge, and musical challenge. Um, so once we figured that out, that was like she identifies as the vixen, not as a hunter, even though that's physically what she's doing. That helped me enormously. Yeah, and it is a kind of linchpin. Of, of, of the whole psychological drama, isn't it? Mm. Both in your version and in the book too as well. Of course, yeah. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that it should return to Britain and be Britain in the 1950s? No, the, the, I mean, that was a given. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I found the, set, the setting in Baltimore or whatever it was very bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Namely, what, you know, what is, what is Sean Connery doing there? Yeah. And, yeah. But also I think it's, it's, it's more interesting um, here to think about the the nuances of class mm -hmm. and um, what it means to actually possess money and what mm -hmm. kind of money it is that you have mm -hmm. and you know I think and I think also um, getting it back to um, the late fifties mm -hmm. was really important too because again what's so what's so radical and I, I I urge you all to read this novel it is yeah. extraordinarily forward looking. Mm -hmm. Um, about a lot of things, um, sort of the function of, of um, psychiatry, but also the, the subtle ways about this kind of economic slavery that she's in and, the, and the, the, the strange way that the sort of tentacles of abuse actually work. So it's not, you know, there's, there is this act of physical violence, but around that, that's, there's a, a whole network of, of pressures. You, you obviously must have been determined fairly early on that some of the characters that might have been on the periphery of the story should be very carefully sketched in. I'm thinking of the brother, Terry, mm -hmm. uh, sung by a countertenor, and I'm thinking of a very small scene, which is the psychoanalyst that Marnie goes to see. I mean, both these characters play an important part in the story. They're not sitting over in the margins, are they? Right. Well, I th and, and in fact, the there are three characters like that. I would say that the Marnie's mother's neighbor, who sort of has, she has one of these kind of surprise arias at the end. Um, and for me, what's amazing about the Graham novel is that's exactly, and not just the novel, but I think about you know, one's own life, is that there are these sort of left field people who come and then change everything up, right? So it's not the obvious. It's not, the, it's not the obvious people in your life who shape it the most. I've, I've found that to be um, just personally true. And then also I should say that, you know, set, 
dramatically, it was really hard to deal with this um, psychiatry scene because, of course, it's all about memory, but it's happening in the present. Mm -hmm. I should say, you know, Katie was, um, I, I sort of built the role on Katie in our, in our workshop that we, that we did in, in December, and that scene has changed a lot since that time. Um, and we had to get it wrong before we got it right. Um, and, it, you know, thinking about memory not as something that's linear, but it's something that's quite crab-wise. How long did it take you to write the score? A long time. <laughs> I mean, it was a couple of years. It, you know, two, it was plus or minus two years. I had other things going on, but then actually, for me, the scariest thing about it was um, orchestrating it. And I had the vocal store done, you know, with months to spare on the on the deadline. But then when I started orchestrating, I realized that it was by far the most complicated thing I've ever done. Mm. And then then the score, and I'm sure Martin will will elaborate on. Uh, arrived in its final form later than one perhaps would have hoped. <laughs> When I when I uh, I saw it first, I, I I thought to myself, this is perhaps less than um, than is might have been the case about Marnie herself than about the family that she marries into. That this is indeed a piece about uh, the power and also perhaps the tyranny of of social class. Mm. And 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 I wonder, as an American looking at British class systems, um, how how easy it is to see that clearly. Well, I think, again, I spend so much of my life here, right. and I think, you know, working in, whilst, you know, working in classical music is not necessarily the most kind of indicative, it is something that, that you just become hyper aware of. Interestingly, in the last few months of orchestration, of, of, of kind of, when I was proofreading it, I um, was hired to write a score um, for the BBC adaptation of Howard's End that's been airing on Sundays at nine. Um, and dealing with, dealing with these two pieces sort of at the same time was fascinating because of course Howard's End is, is, has, yeah. has everything to do with class but in, in a very subtle way, doesn't yeah. it? And, and the, one of the great pleasures of my life was I, I, was, I was taken to um, his archive at King's College Cambridge and they just handed me the manuscript as if it was you know, a newspaper. And looking at his amendments, so fascinating and the way that, it, and it always has to do with these little gestures about class and these little anxieties that Leonard Bast has. And you'd see that he would have gone back maybe, maybe three or four months later with a different stylus mm -hmm. and, and adjusted small little hems of the, of the text. And the other thing about, about, about your version is, in a sense, Marnie seems almost innocent in comparison to the family. In a sense... Yeah, I mean, it, which is I find really fascinating. I mean, there's no sense of of, of guilt and kind of obvious moral um, opprobrium from us watching her. And we understand and we see her as innocent in the face of, of what they can do to each other. Right, and I, well, I think it's in the face. It's it's in um, it's by contrast. And I think you know what what you have, what we set up, is this idea that you know it's. It all it always goes back to mom, right? That's that's always that's always the case. But we have Mark Rutland's mother as this kind of, you know, harpy figure, and then the very very complicated um, sort of toxic relationship between Marnie's mother and this neighbor woman we don't quite know anything about. Um, but with Marnie herself, I feel like we we encroach on her with this ensemble of dancers, and we understand her feeling of guilt rather than us. Um, projecting it onto her, if that makes sense. And it, it's, mu it's much more from, from within the house, if that makes sense. It's also that in this production, um, she has little more than one suitcase. In other words, it's a, kind of to a totally portable life, whereas mm. the family are kind of, you know, uh, encased in kind of a materiality. Right, they? and that's the whole point of them, is, is the stuff that they make, right? It's, and they're, they're sort of in this production mm. mode. Yes, and, and, you know, and again, it's this idea that she 
can work through the leaves like like a fox, you know, in, and and kind of cunningly get out of the way, hide, mm-hmm. and kind of be you know be vicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually it's interesting now now that I've I've seen it on stage with an audience a few times. Um, I'm I'm thinking about little little amendments <laughs> that I might I might make for the next go around. Really? Did you have a clear idea from the beginning what you wanted the production to look like? N- not really. I mean, I try not to write as as in in a prescriptive way, um, just because I think you know I'm much more interested in people whose job it is to to think visually, to do that, <laughs> rather than me saying okay, and it has to be symmetrical, and she has to come down stage. It's you know, and and also I mean Julian. Um, Crouch and Mark Grimmer are sort of, you know, um, mainstays. I love their work uh, and making the piece knowing that they were going to do it was, in a, in a sense, um, really relaxing for me because I knew that whatever they did, they did it was going to be brilliant. And the same with, with Ariane Phillips who did the costumes um, where, you know, she's done a million different things but they are all amazing. Good. Nico, thank you. Stay with us. Uh, but thank you very much. Pleasure's mine. Listen, we're joined now by Katie Coventry, um, who is wearing one of the wonderful Marnie coats. <laughs> Thank you. And is made up for this evening's performance, where she is uh, singing one of the four Marnie... What did you call them? Marniettes? Marnettes. 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 Sh- shadow Marnies. But, but, <laughs> um, and also covering the role of Marnie yes. uh, uh, as well. Um, who are you? <laughs> Here you are, beautifully dressed in this coat, um, and with the shoes, crocodiles. I mean, yeah. who exactly do you think you are? So, we're, we're lots of different things, and it's, it's very much changed um, as the process has gone on. Um, so, we're there to sometimes show what Marnie's feeling inside, but is perhaps veiling from, from the other characters, from mm. the outside world. Um, we're also there to egg her on in a lot of ways when she's thinking about stealing or thinking about, you know, how is this going to work out? Is this going to happen? Is this all going to come together? And we're like, yeah, 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 no, you're doing it, you're doing it. Um, so there is a kind of support for her. Um, and also prote- potentially those little bits of personality that she puts into each of us, the, you know, the Mary Hollands, the Maggie Hulberts that she's, she creates for herself. Um, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's a scene, um, which is the crux of it really, isn't it? The who are we? Are we what we make ourselves to be? Mm-hmm. Or are we how we are made? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really uh, beautiful scene and, and really the kind of crux of what she's, she's thinking about these personalities all the time. And in that scene, we actually individually, the four of us take on a specific characteristic. So I'm the, the dainty regal princess and we have a, a dazzling uh, Marnette and all these, these different things. So yeah, many different things. And it's a, it's, it's a pretty uh, long appearance. I mean, you don't really leave the stage very often, do you? No, I mean, I think it's that, that ever present feelings for her. Mm. You know, she often, you know, we give her that um, support. So we're there for a lot of that. Did you know the novel and the film before you were cast? So I read, I read the novel. So I, we, you know, we worked together on it initially in December last year, and I read the novel kind of then. So it's yeah, quite far in my memory now. And I saw the film after that. So I read, I looked at the music first, mm. and it's very, it's very. I think it's good that way because you see what's then on this what's on this page and how we're treating it mm. and then seeing it in in the book and in the film you you get a sense of how that all pulls together um 
in in that in those forms. But it's it's very interesting the the Marnie that has been created in this score. And so you started work a year ago. What were you actually doing in December so last year? So in December year? last year we had um, a little sing through of it all. Mm. So um, we all got together, and I was doing Marnie at that time. Um, you know, with the view of, of covering it then when it came mm. around here. And the Shadow Marnies didn't even exist then. Mm-hmm. They only well, came they in, in. They were in the score. They were in the score, but they, yeah, they weren't mm. um, roles as they are now. Mm. So that, that kind of came on later. So I was very much, I was kind of here to, to cover it and was enjoying looking at that. And then this little surprise of actually being in the production came up, which was yeah, amazing because it's, it gives you so much more of a view. It would be a very difficult role to cover had you not been immersed in how it was all created and Sasha especially has been very um, at the front of creating that role and her ideas and being in the room with her and and her creative process and what she's bringing to it has just been amazing. Does that going to make it difficult for you should the unthinkable happen and you have to um, go out as Marnie? I don't, I don't know I think um, she's she's come up with a lot of ideas we had our, our cover on this morning actually so I'm kind of How'd done. It go? It's good. Yeah, no, I think it went, it went well. Um, so if the unthinkable <laughs> happened, I'd, I'd feel ready to go on. Um, but yeah, and I think it's it's hard, and especially in a new role. You know, a lot of roles that you know you've seen operas that you've seen a lot of times. You've seen different people create different mm. things out of them, and this is brand new. Sasha's the only person mm. who's done this role and who's created this role. So it's yeah, in that sense, I'm just trying to do what she's doing, do the job of mm. getting through the blocking and staging. Should she not be able to do it? So. When you open the score, can you remember what your first reaction was when you said Miguel's <laughs> music? I, I'll, I'll close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> No, I th- I th- it's it's wonderful, wonderfully written for the voice, and especially there's some dramatic moments. I think as a singer, you know, it goes through your mind singing in an auditorium like this as well. Um, it feels just looking and the score. It feels like, oh, what's that going to be like? It's so dramatic. It's, um, but it's so wonderfully orchestrated as well, and it really complements the singing. And so it doesn't feel. It, it's dramatic, but in a really singable way, and. Um, and as you know, as you'll find out, you know, hearing the lines, it's all very um, written as as you would say it. And that was a lot of our first yes. talks. Was I was you know so keen on getting the rhythms right and getting the notes right, and Nico's just like, forget about the notes, forget about the rhythms. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to do. Well, I've I've, I've learned something with because I've worked with singers for a, lo- a long time, which is that they come and they they've learned it perfectly, and everything is you know is laser precise. Mm. And then the minute you say. And, but it's you know it sounds a little bit learned. Yes, and, yeah. Right. I'd say you can hear them counting, and then the minute you say, you know what, just just relax. Don't even worry about the rhythms. That's when they do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's when what's mm-hmm. at, what's on the score gets actually even more laser precise. So if you just if you just create an atmosphere of we're all we're all in the same playground here mm-hmm. together, then all of a sudden it it, it emulsifies. Yes. Yeah. How did you set about learning the role? Um, lots of different ways. Um, I always write down <coughs> the text of anything I do, so I'm really familiar with, and especially being in English, obviously it's my you know, native tongue, so it's very, you know, I know how I would say things, and they're very accurate to what Nico's written rhythmically. And um, note-wise, you know, there's some phrases that I'd find tricky. I would just, like, record myself singing two bars and, you know, play it to myself or, um, you know, sing along. And, and I think... As well, you know, we have lots of sessions with the repetitors and coaches where they can fill in the, you know, the piano reduction. Um, so you start to then figure out how all how the vocal line fits in with what's going on. Um, 
in the accompaniment and it's mm. yeah so I think it's, it's a long process definitely. Those sessions with the repetiteur mm -hmm. I mean to what extent are they open in that the two of you are working together to find a way of doing something and to what extent is the repetiteur the guardian of, of what uh, he or she sees as the score? Um, well they're very much there to make our lives easier and show us the shortcuts and show us those little things in, in the score that we may not have noticed you know you just get your note from here or it's just this chord or you know kind of um, dumbing it down in a sense <laughs> for, for our singers. I don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, you know, and helping with that and also um, it's great to have a second pair of ears and knowing that what I'm saying is coming out as what it's written um, and sometimes obviously with, with tuning and all of that. So um, it's very much a partnership, I, I think. And if there are things that are difficult, can you then go back, either of you individually or together, mm. and talk to Nico and say, can we yeah. do something here? There's a... Oh, I think there has, there definitely has been that kind of sense. I know you've had a dialogue with some of the singers about notes that have been changed, or in the process there were certain um, f uh, words that maybe didn't work that were changed. I think that's the great thing it's about having the composer. And, the and for me, I mean, I'm, I'm really not precious about um, about changing things, mainly because I, I want to write something. I, I really want to write something that's idiomatic for the voice. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that's uncomfortable. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say, why don't you try it a couple? Why don't you try it a couple more times? But if it really feels like it's awkward, or if it feels like it's hitting the wrong, the wrong place, um, one of the things actually that, that happened um, very quickly when, when I started working with Dan Okulich, who plays Mark, is we located a couple, a couple of spots where he, he'd said, "It sounds technically fine when I do this, but I could deliver this note." I could deliver this note if the text were different, or I could deliver the text if the note were different. And then you work together to find out what's the mm -hmm. most idiomatic. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, we did that actually before he, we even got to rehearsals, where I'd get, I'd get these sort of phone calls of him singing it two different ways. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you get into rehearsals proper, um, I mean, what, what, what happens then for you? What do, I mean, what do you learn in the rehearsal process? Well, you, for a start, you meet everybody else in the cast and you understand what their ideas are about it and what they bring to those characters. You know, seeing um, Mrs. Rutland on the page and then having Leslie Garrett do it in the, in the room, is, it, it brings it to life. And I think, um, so yeah, so that matching of ideas um, and obviously, you know, we have a, a big production team. For us, the Marnette specifically, a lot of it's quite choreographed because we have you know we want to look a certain way and there's four of us so we have to be in tune with what each other are doing um so there's all that kind of yeah all that work from lots of different people the thing that i that i, I loved when i saw it for the first time was the way all four of you and indeed marnie mm. walk <laughs> in this wonderful way uh, that you're transported back to the 1950s, the way that women walk. Uh, is it the shoes? It's, I was going to say, it's I the heels. It's, it's, it's the, the shoes. Heels. We've Those got so um, these beautiful Prada shoes that right. Prada made for us all. Right. And... Um, yeah, it's even, I was um, having a little laugh to myself in the curtain call the other day. Because, you know, we, we um, bent down to take our bows and I saw Charlotte, who's playing Marnette One, her feet, our feet were just even still identical in the curtain call and just made me laugh. But it's, it's also just walking from the there. hips in some way. Yeah, and I think, think I think the costumes definitely help. You know, Ariane's created beautiful costumes mm. that are wonderful to wear. Mm. Um, I myself play a lot of trouser roles, so mm. it's mm. lovely to, mm. to be in such <laughs> to, beautiful... To, to femme it up for a yeah, second. Yeah, to be in such beautiful costumes um, and as well you know with the wigs you just feel so part of the period and um, yeah so that's I think that's the great thing about theatre is that it, each which, each layer is added and you feel totally different um, 
yeah. When you when you get on stage, do things change? Because you don't get very long on stage, do you? Um, oh, we had. A, I felt like we had a good a good amount of time. We had you a did. good kind of week and a half, even. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah um, I think. A, I mean, we had a very very generous <coughs> production yeah. schedule. I thought. Yeah, I thought so. Um, mm. Which gave us the chance to to play things, try things out. Mm. Um, and it, yeah, again, that's another layer when you come on stage. I mean, we had the rake in the process in the in the rehearsal room, and we had um, a lot of the set was moved. We had all of the set, um, so it was you know fantastic. But then just getting on the stage and suddenly being in the theatre and remembering where you've got to translate it all to, and the lights getting involved. I mean, it's yeah, it's definitely that last kind of well, just before the orchestra come in. That's the last kind of magical bit of it. I think I know the answer to my, to my last mm. question, which is, is there something special for any singer uh, being in the premiere of a production, creating a role, even a small role? Absolutely. I mean, we don't often get to perform pieces with the composer in the room. And, and you know, as Nico has alluded to, you know, he's so generous with his time and with changing it around what the singers um, have suggested or when the libretto changes or anything like that. And um, and it's just been, it's been so... It's, been the culmination of so many people's artistry mm. from from the costumes to the lighting to the set to the music to the singers I mean it's just been such a collaboration of so many different talents and ideas mm. which is C so exciting Kofi thank you so much and thank you too for coming in, in <laughs> costume so too and no, I have I such an early call <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much yeah, indeed um, ladies and gentlemen, our final guest this evening is English National Opera's music director who is conducting tonight's performance of Marnie. Will you please welcome Martin Bradley? <laughs> Martin, um, how familiar were you with, 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 with Nico's music before you began work on this? Um, not that familiar. We'd worked together many years before on a, a very small project and I knew... I knew a little bit. When I was asked to do this production, which was before I was asked to be music director, mm. I, I, you know, checked him out. <laughs> As you do. Uh, and what did you decide? Well, I'm here, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, what, the one thing I remember about Nico was what a lovely guy he is. And mm -hmm. that stayed, you know, mm. he's, he's been a, a joy to mm. collaborate mm. with, as Katie's alluded mm. to. Um, and when you opened the score for the first time, what was your reaction to what you read? My reaction was, this two days before the rehearsal is a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> I can't you think I'm joking. I tried, I tried yeah. so hard. <laughs> I got Act 1 in plenty of time, but Act 2 mm. did take... Mm. As Nick, it, it's incredibly detailed. Mm. It's not com Well, it's complex in a sense, but I don't want it to sound... Mm difficult in complexity but it, there's a lot of detail in there and that takes a lot a lot of time to get on paper as uh, or even on i mean so nico's a, i don't think he knows what paper is he does everything no, electronic I write, I write on paper oh you wrote it on of paper of course well. I do. no i'm old school <laughs> good i'm 36 so, years old <laughs> it's old fashioned <laughs> it is a very very detailed uh, score with amazing colour and transparency and power and emotion. So, G Give us a kind of... I know this is a ridiculous question, but I'm going to ask it. Give us a kind of hint of, of the sound world that we're going to hear tonight. Well, I guess people will... If you want a point of reference, people have, have mentioned John Adams, and I know Nico's 
probably not too offended by not that comparison. So many of you will have heard John Adams' operas here. Philip Glass, not, no, that's, that's not the world at all. Um, but Britain also features quite heavily. You feel, especially in the, in the choral writing, perhaps the influence of Britain. And uh, just, it's, there are 20 or 20 scenes in the piece and each one has its own sound world. So you really are very, and every time Marnie's doing one of her bad deeds, you're in a, a very specific sound world. So each time she's robbing the next employer, you kind of know from, from the music. And that, that's how it should be. The music does fulfill the drama as much as the text, actually. But where would you hear uh, Nico's particular musical voice and what if you had to say you know what the accent was where what would it be i wouldn't be able to say i mean it's just nico and i think that's you know you, you'll yeah. all you'll all be able to hear this music and enjoy it on first hearing you should i would recommend you hear it twice yeah. at least of course <laughs> yeah yeah because a new a new piece however complex or or straightforward is a challenge for for listeners and you know, that's, that's the same with all pieces. You, you mentioned Britain then, and one of the great things about Britain is the astonishing way in which he sets text. Mm -hmm. Is the same true here? Is, is, is the text set in a very careful way? Or Nico's squirming with embarrassment, because he knows <laughs> I'm going to be complimentary. He sets the text in a very naturalistic way, as does Britain. Mm. There are, I mean, as, as Nico himself, he wrote me an email, oh, could you move that bit along, because I wrote that terribly six six beat long note for the baritone and it's so, such a mistake so he does write the odd you know elongated vowel and uh, but no it's very naturalistic all the all the speech rhythms are in are in the music and that's because I, I mean I, I basically when, when I was between the ages of 15 and the day before yesterday, sort of slept with the score of, of um, Peter Grimes under my pillow I mean I, I <laughs> for me I mean and and, and Britain's or you know, the turn of the screw, I think, is one of the sort of mm -hmm. high watermarks yeah. of Western civilization. Yeah. <laughs> but just such good text setting, and I, I think about that all the time. Mm -hmm. what, what were the challenges of, with the orchestra when you came to work with the full orchestra on it? I mean, it's again, it, it there were the cha there are challenges. It's technically, you know, challenging and difficult. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing that a, a, a brilliant orchestra can't handle, mm -hmm. and they they do. They do a pretty good job, I think, we all, we all agree. Um, the, the, the challenge we've had on, in certain parts of the score are making sure we can hear the voices. Yeah. And that's something, again, that we just collaborated with uh, very closely and, and made it, as far as, we, as far as we're aware, I mean, my two sons were in the other night and they said, you didn't need the surtitles. They were distracting. You could hear most of the text. So, you know, that's, that's a challenge in any opera. Uh, um, but uh, I think Nico's done a, a really good, careful job on that. I have a question for you about about that because ba you know balance is relative. Right? If you say to the trumpet players, you know, play forte, yeah. that means different things. And mm. in, in in performance practice, right, in 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 known pieces, I feel like again, there's an inherited performance practice of mm. what that actually means in this moment in Zalman yeah, exactly. or whatever. But with a new piece, you don't have that. So that's no. sort of that's why we have to be. That's what we've created. Yeah. yeah. So. A forte means a million different things, you know. Yeah. One of the worst things I have I ever hear from an orchestral musician is I say, could you play that a little quieter, please? It says, but it says forte. That is the worst. Now, <laughs> and I, my response in my head, because I don't say it back to them, is, please tell me, what does forte mean? Yeah. Because yeah. it can mean, forte means loud. 
if you, if, if you, I'm confusing any of you. Uh, so it's loud in relation to all the other instruments that are playing, in relation to the acoustic, in relation to the voices, in relation to the dramatic context. There are so many things. And that's what we try to achieve over a period of rehearsal time and therefore running quite long sections of the piece many times is just as effective as, as stopping and doing detail because these musicians uh, they all understand that they they're here to serve the piece but serving the piece means the voices are audible so they they adjust they listen and adjust the musicians greatest tool are their ears and, and did you have more rehearsal time because it's a new piece than you would have had for a, a, a revival or a new piece, a new production of a, new, of a piece we know well? No, I don't think so. I mean, certainly more than we would have had for a revival. Mm. But no, I mean, fairly standard rehearsal time, and it, it, it proved to be very productive. And, and how do you work with the orchestra in the rehearsal period? Do you work with them in small groups? or do you No, work I just shout at them. <laughs> That I know no. is not true, having watched you in rehearsal. No, I mean, the, we didn't have any sectional rehearsals. You, we, if there had been need, a need for it, mm. we would have done. But yeah. often, I mean, of course, we, there's one particularly nasty violin passage that mm. we had to do several times over and over. Mm. Mm. Uh, there's but, only one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rest fine. of it's fine. Although but, I, uh, I was very moved the other day. I, I came in and maybe an hour before the show, the wind players were doing a, an internal sectional without being told, oh, which is my, I mean, isn't that the, that's the best thing? Yeah. I mean, they're very committed, all these yeah. musicians. So They sound so good. Yeah, it's, it's been... And, and Nick, were great. you there through most of the orchestral rehearsals? Yeah, I went to everything. And, and did, did the two of you talk? I mean, I, I've watched Martin, you're working with new pieces with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and invariably there's a kind of moment in which you step back and the composer and you mm -hmm. sit in a chair at the front and begin to have a look at what's happened. Is this the process that worked here? You yeah, think? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean... I would be working away, and I, if I had a, a question, or if a player had a question, actually, they would, mm. either through me or directly, we would ask Nico, and if Nico wanted something differently, of course he would come and... But we oftentimes had things where I would scurry up and say, I think that should be you, like, I already got it. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we, I think we were very much... I don't think we ever... We, ever we never, no, we never disagreed. So no, no, it was great. Each of the characters, principal characters, is twinned with an instrument in the orchestra. Mm. How exactly does that work? Well, in various ways. I mean, the the mother, for instance, uh, Marnie's mum is twinned with the viola. The, it's a bit of a shame because the Marnie's mum is horrible, <laughs> <laughs> and our viola players, you know, she doesn't want to be. There's awful <laughs> jokes about viola. Yeah, there are. Come to mind. Exactly. And actually, the viola in that case, the viola has a solo, absolute solo, so for about twenty seconds, just before mother starts to sing so that's and then every time the mother appears or is mentioned you hear the viola so that that the viola kind of precurses the appearance of the character and that's often the case but that's the most obvious one the the oboe is it's basically an oboe concerto because the oboe is uh, marnie's uh, orchestral double so she's very busy and she's ruth is playing it wonderfully well um, uh, then with the uh, with Terry, the the rather dodgy character who's uh, Mark's brother, he's twinned with the trumpet, and there's a very sleazy trumpety moment at one point, a very jazzy moment, and Mark Rutland 
is twinned with the most noble instrument in the orchestra, the trombone, my, my former instrument. <laughs> and uh, actually, that's also played by a, a female. So we have three wonderful lady uh, orchestral soloists, two Beckys and a Ruth, and then uh, Tog. Is called Julian Brewer, is playing the trumpet. So they all play a very uh, important part in this piece, actually. And it's integrated in different ways, but actually kind of similar that they... They, they're like the shadow, exactly, shadow yeah. manis. They, they, they can know that the instrument can sort of echo mm. what, what's about to be said or, what, or what, what has just been said, or it can sort of disagree in a way. Mm. And it also allowed me to, to extend the lines um, in ways that obviously the voice wouldn't. But I mean, you must have, it, it's so, because the piano, you know, piano reduction is the piano reduction. Um, but when you finally hear the oboe, it's like, oh. I mean, for me, it was such a relief, you know, after months. <laughs> Nika, how did you decide on, on who got what instrument? I, I, I don't, it wasn't really a decision. I was just, it just, it seems just like an obvious right. thing yeah. to do, right? right? Well, I mean, a countertenor just sounds like a muted trumpet, right? <laughs> um, no, it was, I mean, part of what it was, it, but the, again, this is thinking about Britain, where there's this, there's this awareness that, that the orchestra within, it, within itself contains this kind of chamber ensemble. Um, and I just kind of, it, 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 I never changed my idea about that. Um, but also, you know, I was, thinking, I was thinking about the oboe, and I, this is actually something that John Adams talks about a lot, but the oboe solos in um, Bach Passions, mm. right, where you have the sense of a, of a of a real duet between the instruments and, and, and the voices. And I, you know, obviously it doesn't sound any, anything like that, but it, it, that was something that sort of ha haunted me a bit compositionally. Martin, what about the chorus? What, 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 what is the, we know what the role of the chorus is, but what musically do the chorus have? Well, again, they, ha they have a, a huge variety of uh, utterances uh, from, again, scene setting right at the, the, top of the top of the opera. The first words are 1959 Birmingham. That's their first chorus. Just so you know where we're at. Yes, yeah, so, <laughs> and they, they kind of set the scene in that way. And then they, they're gossiping in the, in the office, these women, you know, I'm going to see my, I'm seeing my boyfriend tonight, and, oh, I love your nails, that colour, and all those kind of things that uh, maybe ladies in offices did talk about in 1959, and maybe still do, I don't know. Um, they also have big dramatic outbursts. I mean, there's an early, early moment where the, where the Marnettes begin this very haunting uh, mm -hmm. refrain that gets repeated several times, and the chorus join in, and this becomes a kind of cathartic outburst of... We realise that this is a very troubled woman from, from what the chorus are, how they're commenting and how they're observing this, and they really do get very impassioned. That's the most intensely passionate moment, perhaps, in the piece, uh, sonically. But it starts, of course, with just a single, Absolutely. a single non-vibrato voice, right? So it mm. starts in, in this idea of kind of pure mm. Tudor mm. Um, simplicity, and then it explodes into yeah. this outrageous. Kind of yeah, and the, there's the, a wonderful moment towards the end that I won't, I won't give the game away, which uh, is a, sublimely beautiful for, yeah. for the chorus too, at the grave, at the grave scene. Yeah. Yes, no stories, Polly. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask questions of our guests, we have a little time. Would you like to put your hand up, catch my eye, and there is going to be a roving microphone. Uh, so if you'd like to put your hand up and catch my eye. Yeah, we have a question over there. Bingo. <laughs> you mentioned that you didn't want a soprano in this opera. Was, is that particular to this opera? or all your work, and if so, what have you got against sopranos? <laughs> no, I love, I, I love the soprano voice, but I was thinking, you know, the complexity of, of um, 
of Marnie's character, I just, mm. I just immediately heard it as being a mezzo. Um, and I wanted, you know, for, for me, I wanted to reserve the soprano role um, for Mark's mother and really, and really, and really exist in the kind of warmth and, and nuance of, of a mezzo. Um, I think part of it is just one of those things that I, I sort of fell into almost always writing for mezzos in, in chamber contexts or um, in my previous operas. And it, it was really just, it wasn't, it, it's not, I, I mean, I love me a soprano. It, it was just, it felt like the story required a mezzo. Right. You are in good company, <laughs> yes. of course, with Rossini. Right, yes, exactly. So you're in very good company. A question in the, in the second row over here. Uh, a very good friend of mine uh, put great emphasis on the value of silence. Could you comment, please? I didn't quite... Could you, could you repeat the question? We don't think we quite... The question was... A friend of mine put great value on the existence of silence. Right. The importance of silence in music, and not, I think, in all musical. We should be here for a long time. Um, but um, is silence part of the way you? you so, if I'm understanding you correctly, one of, one of the, the things that I always ask myself when I'm writing any piece of music, from you know a two-minute-long piece of piano music, um, and this sounds sort of flip, but it's actually true, which is, is this better? Is what is the music better than the equivalent amount of silence? So, if you're going to write a, a you know a forty-minute piece. Would it would it be better if you if you sat in meditative silence? And I spend a lot of time in silence because um, the act of composing is itself silent. And I don't compose at a piano, so it's the only noise is the, the is the pen. Um, and it's strange to think that writing a huge piece of orchestral music the, that that process itself is silent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another question. Anybody else? I love this wonderful English moment. I know. Uh, <laughs> It's probably off, off the topic, but I did see the dress rehearsal, and one of the most impressive things, quite apart from the opera and the music and the singing, was the way the scenery moved around and the, and the video moved with the scenery. <laughs> How they do it, I have no idea. But, uh, you know, it's absolutely wonderful to watch. I mean, I, I can tell you what it is, is that you teach the projectors where the sliders are, and so basically they, as they understand the relative distance of the sliders not just to one another, but to the, the origin point of the, of the mm -hmm. things that connect them. And so the technology is relatively new. It's this mm -hmm. kind of mapping. Um, but Mark Grimmer, who, did, who designed the projections, um, is his company, 59, um, they projected onto the Sydney Opera House. They projected you know, it, onto a lot of odd-shaped surfaces. So some, square, some squares running around stages is child's play for them. <laughs> we had a question here, which I think will be our last question. Just in the third row. And Nico, I wondered uh, what brought you into composing in the first place. Oh, um, that's... <laughs> You've got one minute. Okay, great. So I can do this really, really quickly. I, I was a kind of lousy pianist. I was you know, eight or nine years old. Um, you know, I didn't really like practicing that much. And I was singing in a, in a boys' choir in the Anglican tradition outside of Boston. And something clicked in me where I was playing kind of, um, you know, Russian romantic piano music and then singing sort of Talus and Bird and Gibbons and Ty. And it all just kind of worked for me. And what I realized was that this idea of making romantic piano music was, I wasn't interested in that, um, that sort of show-offiness, but instead I was interested in this music in, in church where no one claps. It happens, it doesn't happen at 8 p.m., it happens at 11.15 in the morning. Um, and I, I just, I, and the, the, the presence of the composer 
it sort of goes away, right? And instead, what your job is as a composer is to write music that helps other people look upwards, in a sense. Um, and I'm much more articulated about it now than I was then, but at, at, even at the age of 11, I, I sensed immediately the romance of that kind of music making. Um, so that's, that's really what it, what it has been the whole time for me. Even though, obviously, I read a lot of concert music, I still maintain that idea of... It's sort of actually about the silence, too, which is, you know, would, is this preferable to being in the meditative state in which I spend most of my days. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, some, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for being splendidly attentive um, and listening with such care. But our biggest thanks, of course, are to Nico Mooney, Katie Coventry and to Martin Brabins. Thank you all three. Thanks, well done. Well done. Well done.